You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the once and future official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com for the first time in quite a while. I am your host, Troy Goodfellow, and this is episode 146. With me uh, today is one of my regular panelists, my war game mentor and dear friend, Dr. Bruce Garrick. Hello, gamers! That's more enthusiastic than usual. Yeah, good. Excellent. We're, Why we are you a... so enthusiastic? Oh, because we have a very special show today because um, uh, I had a kind of a brainstorm. I thought uh, Troy had uh, a while back suggested a show on air power uh, in computer games or games about air power, strategy games about air power. And uh, I said that there weren't any. So uh, we canceled that. But then I thought, well, why don't we have a, uh, a show about air power and strategy games and actually include somebody who knows about that kind of stuff? So we got our guest. Troy, who is our guest? Our guest uh, is the great board game designer Lee Brimicum Wood. Lee, welcome to the show. Uh, why don't we start by you telling our audience what you've made and see if they've actually heard of any of these because you have worked on some pretty uh, great titles. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, well, it's great to be here. Um, I wish I could uh, maintain the same uh, enthusiasm level as you guys. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that came out all wrong, didn't it? <laughs> uh, that sounded like I was very unenthusiastic to be here, which is not true. No, uh, I've actually, I suppose I've been around the block quite a bit. Um, in the war games field, I sort of cut my teeth, uh, essentially being a, a, a tester and uh, all-round uh, gadfly for people like J.D. Webster, who you yep. guys might know from oh, yeah. the Air Superiority series and mm -hmm. uh, uh, Over the Reich, the uh, Fighting Wing series and so on. So um, I, I think that was kind of one of my roots in, really, to, to the air games hobby, was that uh, I got to know those guys quite well and uh, you know got to be a good friend of uh, J.D.'s and test the games and uh, be part of that sort of air games community. And then I went and worked with a guy called Tony Valley, who you may have heard of, uh, on a game called Birds of Prey, yep. uh, which yep. was a kind of very high-fidelity modern uh, air combat simulator. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, sort of now, that's now out. Uh, uh, that came out uh, well enough a few years ago. I've forgotten exactly when. Um, but about 10 years ago, in fact, it was pretty much exactly 10 years ago, uh, I started designing my own games, and essentially I moved up a scale from the sort of dogfight games, the air combat maneuvering games mm -hmm. uh, that I'd been playing before. And uh, the first title I produced was a game called Downtown, which was about the air raids on uh, Hanoi and uh, the, the sort of northern route packs um, in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was really a game that was looking at what what happened when the the big package um, American raids hit the uh, Vietnamese integrated air defense system, and uh, that turned out to be very popular. A lot of people liked it, got some awards, and so my next game was uh, a game on the Battle of Britain, which is a subject that's been covered fairly extensively before. But I thought I ca I came in with a fairly novel approach, which was to focus very much on the um, raid-scale battle rather than the, the larger uh, larger battle, mm -hmm. and uh, produced some, uh, I think, quite an original game and quite a detailed game on the 
battle. A lot of people seem to like that as well. So, yep. uh, my most recent game, which came out this year, was a game called Night Fighter, which was uh, actually going back down to the tactical level, individual aircraft. Right. Uh, it's about uh, night fighter aircraft in World War II hunting down bombers uh, in the dark. And yeah. interesting enough, that game was not the game I was originally going to design. Uh, oh. I was actually designing another game called Bomber Command, which is my attempt to do a raid scale game on uh, the RAF's raids over the Reich in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And somehow, I don't know how exactly, I kind of got conned into making Night Fighter on a bet. I think really? somebody came up with, oh, I, can't, I, don't, I don't think you can make a... a, a, a tactical game on night fighting. No, actually, I, I said that. I said I can't make a tactical game on night fighting. And somebody, somebody else said, I bet you can. And so I went and did. And that ended up coming out before uh, before Bomber Command. But I'm now in very much the last stages of, uh, uh, well, I'm finishing Bomber Command. I should be delivering this um, just after Christmas and uh, should be coming out in the spring of next year. Excellent. Awesome. Well, now, Bruce, you've, you're, you've played a lot of downtown and a lot of these games. Well, I, so I have to I have to have a disclaimer in this uh, episode that uh, I'm actually a big fan of all of Lee's games. Uh, there's one game that Lee didn't mention, and I, I guess Lee, you're you're not the design. Terry Simo is the designer of Elusive Victory, right? You, That's he, correct. He, yes, he uses your system, but it's his game. Yes, yes, very much. I mean, it was an interesting one that because uh, uh, Terry, no, actually, it wasn't. It was. I think I kicked off the project, and it was. Uh, I was hunting around for a subject to port the system to, mm -hmm. um, and the problem with that game system is I think it is very, very difficult to port it to other wars uh, because it was very much based around the idea of the big package raid against the uh, the integrated air defence system. Right. And we sort of looked into whether we could do uh, the war over the Sinai and uh, specifically sort of Israeli Air Force against uh, the Egyptian Air Force mm -hmm. and uh, f then I kind of got distracted I think I got distracted by making the burning blue so it kind of got like left in the background and Terry was working away and beavering away on the thing mm -hmm. and uh, then eventually I finished the burning blue and I came back and said oh uh, well Here's some ideas about how I might well, you know, completely redesign downtown in order to do things differently. And by this time, though, Terry had sort of gotten an elusive victory to such an advanced stage that uh, it was, I think, much uh, more sensible to let him get on with it and uh, finish the thing himself. Right. And so, uh, yeah, you know, he's he pretty much um, almost all his own work, really. Okay. Well, so <clears throat> I guess the point is that uh, you know I have all I have all for the for the listeners I have all of Lee's games and I have actually pre-ordered Bomber Command in the way that uh, GMT Games works. You know they have um, you you pre-order and then they get to a certain level, which is 500 games uh, ordered, and then they go ahead and and, and uh, you know green light it, finalize it, and send it and ship it. So. Uh, so I have an in, I have a vested interest in all of Lee's games uh, doing well, so that I can keep playing more of them. Uh, but I'm going to try to be very objective and critical and 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 hard nosed in this uh, in this podcast, as I always <laughs> oh, am. Please don't. We all know. So, but uh, I, I wanted to I wanted to talk to. Uh, I have so many ways that I want to take this. I want to make sure we uh, we do this in some kind of coherent manner. But um, the 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 thing that. Um, we should mention for our listeners because this is a this is really a computer games uh, sort of podcast. We talk about board games a lot um, here and there, but it's uh, you know a sort of com element of, of common references is, is uh, 
computer games. But Lee, you you're actually a, a computer game developer. You've you've worked on previous. Uh, you you worked on. You worked on uh, K52 Team Alligator. Did you work on Team Apache also? Oh, that was mine. Yes, I was lead designer on both of those games. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lordy, um, I'm surprised you even remember them. They're very long time ago. Yeah, well, that's uh, so. Uh, but your your um, and anything that you you uh, uh, worked on that you're you're comfortable talking about, uh, please please bring it up. But um, I, I'm I'm curious as to how you go from being from from designing a, a uh, you're a lead designer on a um, a flight simulation going to uh, designing strategy board games about air combat on a completely different scale what's the how did how did you get involved in that and what was the you know what are the different issues obviously there are a host of different issues but uh, how do you have to think about things differently oh you I think you think about them in a very very different fashion um, it was very interesting I was at a conference connections conference um, which uh gets held regularly. It's kind of an opportunity for game designers and software developers and uh, uh, you know, the real big sim uh, guys to, to get together and talk amongst themselves and talk with the military. And um, I remember at one conference, I think this was at Maxwell Air Force Base in, in, in Alabama some years ago, uh, mm-hmm. I met uh, Bob Shaw. And Bob Shaw is the guy who literally wrote the book on um, Air combat maneuvering or fighter is combat. He, is he the one that wrote the book? Uh, f- there's fighter combat. I have a book by him, Robert Shaw. There's that's a, right. That's him. Okay, fantastic. Okay. That that's the guy. Yeah. Uh, um, is it fighter combat? I think that's the name of it. Yeah, it's on my shelf. If I walked in the other room, I could pick it up immediately. I know exactly yeah, where it is. Same, yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, he's a very interesting guy. I think he, he's a consultant these days. Um, or at least was when I was see- I, I I met him. And uh, at that time, I think we were. Me and Tony Valley were working on Birds of Prey, and we were giving a demonstration of it there. And the the interesting thing that um, that uh, Bob Shaw said was that uh, the thing that the flight sims don't give is, uh, in some cases, kind of like a uh, an analytical understanding of of how a fight works. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the thing about the paper games is that uh, you get to see inside the black box and you get to actually deconstruct how a fight goes. And mm-hmm. he could see um, the game that we were developing then, which was Birds of Prey, as being very much a, uh, a, a like a, a, a good training tool for teaching tactics uh, mm-hmm. in a way that a, that a, simulator, a simulator doesn't. Um, and, you know, a simulator is very good... You know, the big boy simulators with the, the enormous projectors and, uh, right. and the full controls and so on are very good at, uh, at uh, you know teaching how to use the systems, teaching procedures, and uh, you know it's essentially you know they're 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 training a, a very specific set of tasks. What they don't necessarily teach that well is tactics, mm-hmm. and that stuff has to be learned by a combination of methods. And I think you know simulators form part of it, and uh, actually flying. The, the aircraft is obviously a very very large part of that, and uh, there's obviously quite a lot of kind of school schoolroom work. And what in some cases was the Bob Shaw was felt was missing was uh, something like a uh, uh, you know a, a paper a game tool that might help um, some of the students um, learn and deconstruct a, a battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was one of the things that we were trying to do when we were selling uh, Birds of Prey at that time. So uh, I think you know the, these are, are, are game. These kind of games sort of complement each other. 
Now, obviously, I didn't work in, on a big boy simulator. I, uh, I worked on uh, an entertainment product, um, which instantly comes with a whole raft of compromises. I mean, you know, just start with the interface, for example. You, know, you have a, you know, these were PC games. You have a keyboard and you have a mouse, and which don't resemble anything that you find in a helicopter cockpit. Right. Mm-hmm. Quite clearly, and you don't have any of the feedback uh, that you have when using a, a set of helicopter controls, and uh, you are limited to a quite small screen at an incredibly tiny resolution. That's nothing like uh, gives you nothing like the resolution that you have in in real life. Right. This is actually one of the real the, the, the really big problems that we have. I mean, uh, we we do little tricks to get around this sort of thing by, for example, setting uh, the sizes of aircraft um, at the the very low levels of detail to be quite large. Um, but essentially, you know, you have a player who's trying to pick out a single scintillating pixel on the screen, right. um, f- representing an aircraft that might be, you know, five miles away or something like that. Right. It's it's not it's it's, it's nothing like uh, the kind of fidelity that you'll get on you know one of the big boy uh, simulators where they have these very high resolution projectors um, projecting onto a dome or screens or whatever it is around the around the user. Right. So, and 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 like you said, that only gives you sort of the the idea of what it's like to fly that one plane. And and when you started making when you when um you started making these games like Downtown, it sort of takes you to the up a, a another couple levels where you're saying, well, we need to uh, put you know a certain weight of munitions on this target. How do we do that and neutralize the you know the uh, uh, combat air patrol and neutralize the uh, you know the ground defenses and uh, you know get the 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 strike aircraft in and out with um, you know the, maximize their chance for recovery of the of the flight crew if uh, you know if they're shot down and those are all problems that just don't have any sort of correlate in a game where you're wor- where, you know where you're worried about uh, you know what a, an individual plane's angle of attack is. That's right. Although you know, there are some um, software games that have tried to do this. I mean, some old timers might remember a game, uh, a game called Tornado, which uh, mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. did, a, yeah, did allow right. for kind of route planning and all that kind of stuff, and you, know, right. you could route yourself around threat wing rings and, and so on. Right. Um, I think this this is a good time to just kind of bring in an issue that I've talked about uh, elsewhere on other forums, uh, like Board Game Geek, which is the issue of scale. Right. And obviously, the games like the the, the Team Apache and, and um, Team Alligator uh, are similar to to games like Air Superiority and uh, Birds of Prey in the sense that they're all very much focused on the, the kind of micro tactical level, what I prefer to call uh, the the dogfight scale. Mm-hmm. Um, very much focused on the individ- what the individual aircraft is doing um, on air combat maneuvering and, and all those kind of exciting things where you get to, you know, fly the airplane and go whoosh whoosh all around the sky and uh, shoot things down. And um, in some ways, for board games, that is one of the really hardest scales to handle. I mean, right. anybody who's bought Birds of Prey knows that it's. Uh, very very complex game involves a fair bit of math yeah. to uh, to make it work and drive it along, and uh, you know it's I think it's actually quite an accessible game, but it's certainly going to be be beyond the capacity of some gamers to to handle. The other thing, thing about those games is that they require uh, there's a lot of of actual uh, you know game mechanic 
there's a high ratio of game mechanics to actual doing things on the map board, which I think turns a lot of people off. You have to do, there's a lot of referencing the rules and checking things in this before you actually even touch a piece. And each time a piece moves, it's very much like a game uh, I remember from the very old days called Air War. Uh, oh, God. From, yes, uh, I do remember yeah. that. Yeah. I, I was an expert at that game. I have to say. We, played, <laughs> yeah. we played all the huge scenarios uh, in there. We, we did them all, yes. Really? That's, yeah, that's, a very, that's very ambitious. It's much better than, I, than uh, I was able to achieve with that. But yeah, you're, so continue. Oh, no. Uh, so, uh, yeah, sorry. Air War, that takes me back. I remember a high, uh, last year at high school spent playing that intensively. Yeah. But yes, I mean, we have here, as you say, you, you quite rightly point out, this is very high workload. And um, uh, it's not very accessible. And there are also just simple problems in, in modeling, modeling aero down at this level. It, it gets very, very granular. Right. And right. there are a lot of problems. I mean, showing um, uh, things like an attitude of an aircraft in three dimensions. And, right. uh, you know, I think, again, Birds of Prey, we did some really novel things to, to, to um, depict this. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very uh, complex uh, arena to, 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 to model. So in some ways, I've kind of taken the easy route by, by kind of bailing out from that and, and focusing on these larger scales. Although the interesting thing is it's uh, these larger scales, I mean, downtown and, and, and upwards, uh, the, what I call the raid scale games are, are an area that hasn't been explored that extensively. I mean, there have been a few games. I mean, in fact, the one classic that everybody remembers is uh, the old Avalon Hill Luftwaffe. Right. One right, of the very exactly. first raid scale games. Yep. Right. And... You uh, then you know I think there's a Quinto's bomber which I, I yes think I was about to say Quinto's well. bomber but uh, you, you, yeah exactly so that all the games like that um, and and those the 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 um, computer game uh, equivalent or correlate to that would be like Gary Grigsby's uh, USAAF um, and right. uh, I, John Tiller made a game. Uh, a few years ago, it's called. I think it's called Air War Vietnam. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, that was a computer game. Was that HPS game. or something? Yes, it was. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, it's uh, basically a game where uh, uh, you, you basically do exactly the things that you do in um, uh, in downtown, but uh, you know, on the computer. And it has. And it's interesting. I want to talk a little bit about that when we get to it because uh, it, it you do. <coughs> It seems to me like one of the things about the the raid scale games is that uh, you don't have all that much um, the the ratio of game mechanics and, and and sort of things you're you're fiddling with before you move a piece are much that ratio is much lower and but yet you still have a lot of things to reference and I think that 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 gives you this kind of um, uh, this the, that allows you to the, the idea of, of interacting with mechanics in a board game. I mean, that's very important. Just having uh, having to check whether uh, you know what the modifier is because the the you know the service to air missile had to uh, you know it had, there's a chaff modifier to that. Um, that's important for the player to be able to see that and touch that and know that that's being incorporated into whatever result he gets. Mm -hmm. um, and when you do that sort of under the hood in a computer game, it gets kind of lost, and you sort of have to take it take it for granted that the computer game is is doing that. Um, well, but, I think when you when you get to the raid scale game, you're talking about uh, you know, I think you're talking about a, a very distinct number of things. Um, mm -hmm. You are no longer interested in what the individual aircraft is doing. You're interested in what formations of aircraft are doing. 
Um, you're right. interested in what the the roles of those aircraft are, and mm. uh, they may have very distinct roles. Um, you know, you may have aircraft which are your strike aircraft, your strike package. You may have right. escorts accompanying them. You may have suppression, you know, air, air, air defense suppression aircraft, right. and. So actually, what you're doing is you're, you've gotten away straight away from the flying part of it. The flying is actually immaterial in these games because mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know you're not interested in what the, the direction an airplane is pointing in 3D space. Um, right. You know, you, what you're interested in is what your flight path is, and right. actually your aircraft are flying for the most part straight and level. For uh, and and anything they do that's kind of you know wiggling around the sky, um, uh, maneuvering hard, is so far down in the weeds that you can just ignore it. You just right. say, oh, there is um, some air combat maneuvering over there, and we'll resolve it in an abstract fashion. So so you, you've gotten rid of the flying. I think that simplifies a whole bunch of things. So what you what you have now though. Is you have the combination of the 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 uh, the aircraft package and all the roles of the aircraft within the package and what they're doing, and you have the systems, and the systems are also very very important. I mean, you mentioned kind of electronic warfare a, a moment ago, but mm -hmm. it's uh, it may be other things as well. It may be what particular um, uh, you know weapons that you're carrying. I mean, do you have, for example? Are uh, you carrying dumb bombs? Do you actually have to close to eyeball range with these targets to be able to bomb them? Or do you right. have a standoff weapon of some description? Can you fire from, from some distance? Uh, is it a precision munition that you're using? Uh, in, do your support aircraft have uh, various forms of electronic jamming? Um, mm. Do your escort aircraft, what's their, their radar like? What's, what kind of distances can they detect people? Do they have um, look-down capability to see enemy aircraft at low level? Do they have IFF interrogation, interrogators so that they can uh, maybe detect uh, an enemy aircraft and get a, uh, uh, you know, tag it as being an enemy so that they can shoot at it um, beyond visual range? Those things, all of a sudden, those become really, really important. And right. I think what we did with uh, with downtown was very much took, take away all the flying part, made that incredibly simple, mm -hmm. um, and then focus on the systems. And if you, you play downtown, you know that uh, it is actually all about these obscure little bits of kit, um, uh, which is is interesting. It's a, it's a fascinating little period of history, uh, the Vietnam um, Air War, uh, all the way through the, the 60s to the early 70s. You see this. Uh, uh, technological uh, improvement uh, right. happen and you see aircraft start the war with uh, with with no electronic warfare kit no jammers no uh, radar warning receivers um, they have uh, you know possibly no radar even no beyond visual range missiles right. and then by the end of the war they've got oh, all sorts of stuff they've got right. uh, you know medium range missiles they have uh, IFF interrogators they've got uh, people laying down chaff carpets for them so that they uh, they can uh, avoid being shot at by SAMs and, and, and they've got these precision guided munitions and they're, they're, they're accurately dropping bombs uh, on targets rather than trying to plaster the area well so, you have uh, you have a whole list of things and I mean the downtown rule book I mean the you, the you have how many attack profiles do you have you have dive bombing you have uh, level bombing, you have radar bombing, toss bombing, even, and then as you get tech more technologically advanced, you get the you know laser guided bombing, electro optical guided bombing. Uh, you know, I mean, I think just part of the part of the the appeal of the game is being able to play with all these different kinds of systems. Oh yeah, yes, I kind of threw everything, including the kitchen sink, in there. Um, right. Interesting enough, I don't know whether I would design the game that way again if I had the had the. the, the chance why not I think that uh, I think it's something that comes with maturity as a designer what you do is you learn to do more with with less I, I think it's a uh, 
the nature of the the tyro designer the guy who's starting out is that you know he comes with passion for a subject and and he wants to show you everything and he he throws everything in there and i think i very much did that with downtown you know all the bits all the little little uh, g-jaws uh, are there in the game and actually what you do is i think you get experience is that you, you learn to do more with less and actually what you do is you start sorting out what the important things are from the unimportant detail and and, and Chrome. Do they use, use the term Chrome anymore? I think they still do. Oh, don't they? yeah. They use. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Chrome. Troy, you have any comments on Chrome? No. Uh, <laughs> Chrome's cool. I like Chrome. <laughs> well, uh, I, I think the, the. You know, yes, Chrome, Chrome is very cool. And I don't think uh, I've made a game without any Chrome yet. Uh, but I, I think that there's a lot less plating on my more recent games. And I, I think that comes because I'm, I'm now trying to uh, see what I can do more elegantly as a designer. And that means, in some cases, taking out a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of process, taking a lot of workload off of the player. Um, and maybe this is because I'm just getting older and, and want games that I can play, you know, faster. Right. And so I think maybe that's one of the things that inputs into that. But it's also just the joy of, of being able to represent something in a very elegant fashion in the very, very, very minimum of effort. And so. Uh, you know, with downtown, I, I did throw everything, including the kitchen sink, in, and there's there's a hell of a lot of stuff there. Uh, but uh, I might not necessarily do that again. I mean, there, there's there are things in there that you will very rarely use. They're there almost for the completest. They're there for the the very rare situation that you might want to. I don't know. Try and do a Loran attack through cloud during the monsoon season uh, <laughs> in you know some some obscure target. I mean, you, right. you can do it. It's there. But uh, actually, it was it was more there for the completest. Mm. I think this this comes out when I I, um, I look at the game I'm working on right now, Bomber Command, uh, because there is also a war with a lot of kind of obscure um, uh, pieces of equipment. I mean, all with marvelous code names. You like you know Corona and Window and uh, uh, Village Inn and Boozer and uh, Mandrel, and all of these are little different pieces of, of, of kit. And I, I had this thing. How do, how do I represent these things in the game? Particularly since the way they interacted all seemed to be quite chaotic in the way that in the way that they appeared to interact when I. I looked at them in the in the, the standard narratives and the narrative histories, and the way I ended up doing it in the end was I, I kind of I, I feel like I cleared the the, the 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 desk off of all mechanics to do with these things, and uh -huh. instead what I did is I ended up putting them on a card deck. Okay. So now you know you play Mandrel as a card, you play Village Inn as a card. Okay, Village Inn. This means I've got the AGL uh, LGT. Um, uh, automatic uh, 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 radar-guided turrets on my my Lancasters, and so this is going to give me a benefit in terms of defensive fire against night fighters. So what I ended up doing is was essentially shifting all of the things that would have been large, complex rules mm -hmm. as I would have done in downtown into these uh, much more elegant uh, card play and card deck. Well, you've you've done that, but then you've decided that uh, you know, in case people aren't satisfied with that, you can just take the uh, the you know bomber command uh, you know scenario and just play out the actual tactical part in Night Fighter. That's right. That's very so, true. So you're having it both ways there. Kinda. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible, isn't it? Yeah. And and then, um, I mean, 
Yeah, so I mean you can and then and then in Night Fighter, you know, you have rules for oblique guns, you have rules for, you know, schlage music. I mean, you have all sorts, you know, there's all sorts of crazy stuff in there too. And 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 uh that's not a criticism, it's just a I think it makes the point that in order for games to be games about these subjects to be interesting to the people who are going to play them, you you kind of have to have that, right? Because part of the reason that people play them is that they they're interested in the subject and they read about these things and, and they want to have that thing in their game. Well, it was, it was Redmond Simonson um, talked about paper time machines, and uh, you know, I I probably come from the side of the the hobby that I think is interesting very two in two things. Uh, one is in the history, uh, very very interested in the history, and secondly in narrative. And I think the thing about my games is that they are designed to generate very very strong narratives. And right. so, in the case of Bomber Command, for example, all these these things, all these little bits of kit, I didn't want to want to leave them out of the game, but right. I just found a much more elegant way of incorporating them that didn't have the overhead that, for example, I had in Downtown. So um, I think you know you're right. It's, these things are important. Is they have to be there. People want to see you know the the, the oblique guns. They want to see the um, uh, you know all these strange little little code words and pieces of kit. And I think, uh, you know, I found a way to incorporate those things in in a much more elegant fashion. Right. So, tell tell us a little bit about um, about Bomber Command. It's a game that's not out, so we can call this a uh, a preview, an exclusive preview. And probably. Yes, the, the only video game podcast that yeah. is going to have an exclusive preview <laughs> of Bomber Command. I can say that right now. There you go. <laughs> this is what we are in for. So yeah, tell us about Bomber Command and. Uh, the systems you've used in it and why you've chosen to go back to, of course, uh, the World War II, the war over uh, Germany? Uh, it began really with the end of uh, The Burning Blue, which was my Battle of Britain game. And you know, people were wondering, what am I going to do next? I was wondering what I was going to do next. And one of the things that was discussed was the idea of maybe porting the, the, the Burning Blue uh, system to another subject and we were kind of looking at options I mean Malta was one possible option and the, the, the big one that came up of course was um, you know 8th Air Force, Air Force raids over the, over the Reich right and so I, I started taking a look at this and well for starters the the, the scale was all wrong uh, the scale seemed seemed very very wrong to do it I mean to to get to Berlin and back would have taken you across something like about three map sheets. It would have taken forever to play. It would have been interminable. Right, right. Uh, but as I kind of went on, I also became somewhat dissatisfied with the subject matter. The, the, the problem with the, the daylight raids is, well, they've been covered fairly extensively. I've got about three or four different games on my show, shelves on the subject. Um, so in some ways it's been done. And and it also it was a much simpler um, uh, uh, model than I was kind of looking for. It was uh, I'd have you'd have had something that was much more like kind of a force on force model, a simple simple experience where you know large raid and a large raid package bullying its way through um, uh, to its target and, and back again. And maybe there you know there, there was some things that could be done with the fighter sweeps and with uh, with the various raids on airfields and things, but essentially it wasn't enough wasn't enough there to kind of like uh, stir my imagination. The night raids though, I thought to myself, well, nobody's really done though, that done this mm-hmm. subject. Now this was before um, Duel in the Dark had come out, um, which was right. kind of a Euro-ish game on, on the subject of the, the night raids. But so it, it, was, uh, it was kind of virgin territory. I think um, your Quinto game had a, had a sort of a, 
a, a night raid thing with Lancasters, but no, nobody had really covered the subject, and it was also one of those. Well, have to, we have to kind of tackle this head on. It's sort of kind of politically somewhat uncomfortable subjects. That was going to be my next question. That was going to be my next question. But keep going. Uh, but uh, and well, that just kind of like excites me even more because you know, <laughs> okay, <laughs> because it brings out the inner troll in me, and you know, there's an opportunity there to you know uh, prod gamers in the ribs and say. You see, you get it, you get it, mm-hmm. and um, so yes, that was, uh, <laughs> that was some of the motivation. So really, I started reading and reading, and then suddenly got distracted by by Night Fighter. Oh, can you make a game on, on the tactical night fighting? Uh, no, you can't. Oh, yes, I can. Okay, I've got an idea. Go away, design that. Spend two years doing that. But actually, what happened was it was actually a very very fortuitous decision. Because um, it allowed me to, you know, do a lot of reading on the subject uh, while designing the tactical game, and so when I came back to designing Bomber Command, which was about um, a year and a half, two no, just over two years ago now, a lot of those ideas have been percolating around for for quite a while, mm-hmm. and so when I actually came to sit down and start typing out uh, the first draft of the structure of the game. Uh, what came out was, um, in some ways, like like a, uh, uh, like when a, sh- a chef takes loads of ingredients and and boils them down to make a, a rich sauce. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's what I had with Bomber Command, which is all, all this stuff which originally was quite detailed, you know, sort of uh, uh, the burning blue downtown level of detail. A lot of that that stuff had been boiled away, and what I was left was was with a rich sauce, and the rich sauce here was in fact the I think two things, two themes. One was the interaction between the uh, the German air defences and the the incoming uh, British raids, and that mm-hmm. was itself kind of an interesting thing because the, the 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 British raids were somewhat different from the the American. I mean, obviously they were at night; they didn't really have any kind of fighter escort or, or need a fighter escort in quite the same way as the, the daylight raids did. And because of the difficulties of night navigation, what you ended up with is the way the way that Bomber Command actually launched its raids. There was this like this um, Dungeons and Dragons style wandering monster that sort of uh, uh, a kind of a snake of bombers about mm-hmm. 18 miles wide and 150 miles long, kind of oozing its way across Europe mm-hmm. to its target. And uh, you know, against this was the 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 the, the, the night fighters, and they had you know. Uh, and all the the whole integrated air defence system. So they had a chain of radars that was picking up the raids and trying to detect them and plot them, determine where they were going, try and put fighters in their way. And the fighters had to be uh, either sent to cities to try and fight the, the the bomber stream at the cities, or they were sent to radio beacons with the hope that they could somehow infiltrate the raid. And then once inside, they could kind of swim inside the bomber stream like sharks inside a shoal, you know, picking hmm. off enemy bombers while they could. And so all of a sudden, there's this kind of really strong narrative here that I thought, hey, here's a here's the armature of a of a game. Well, so, how do, uh, what happens in the game when you're playing the game? What happens in the game? What 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 are what are the players' responsibilities? Okay, so let's start. You have the the, the British player. The British player um, obviously controls. Uh, uh, bombing raid and like my other games like downtown like the burning blue this is a raid, one of my raid scale games where you you plot 
your um, your your raid. You just you determine the course that your raid actually takes uh, through the sky. Um, the plotting, by the way, in this game is much simpler than my previous ones. You'll find. I mean, you more or less just draw a line on a map. But uh, once plotted, you're kind of fixed to that plan. But you, it's not just a case of saying, well, this is the line that my main raid takes. You do actually have a few other tools at your disposal. I mean, for example, you have little forces of mosquito bombers, which were these very, very fast-moving, uh, uh, small, light bomber aircraft. And they perform quite an important role. They are often being used to, as diversions and decoys and so on. So you, in addition to plotting the main force, which is uh, the, the main raid that you use to, to, to attack Germany, you have these little uh, mosquito forces uh, zipping around hither and yon, uh, trying to bomb cities and, and try and pull the, the German defences this way or that. And so the German player, he is uh, sitting there and he is trying to, to detect what the raid is doing and he he's got limited intelligence he only sees the raid when he um, rolls for detection and rolls sufficiently high enough that he can see see what the raid is doing and when he does this the the the, the, the British player has to kind of fess up and say well according to my plot my my raid force is here and the, the bomber stream is here and so uh, the first thing that the German player has got to do is got to find out where the raid is coming he might not see it in fact, it's possible if he gets a really horrible string of dice rolls um, that he might not actually see the raid at all until it starts bombing a city. Mm -hmm. If that happens, that well, that sucks a lot. It has to say, but okay. <laughs> it, it, it can it can possibly happen. It's, it, it's less than likely, but it can happen. Um, but then he's got to you know um, try and respond to this in some way. He has to scramble his uh, his uh, fighter gruppen, which are all on the on the ground all, all mm -hmm. across Germany. Has mm -hmm. to assemble them where he thinks the uh, the, the raid is going, and uh, try and come up with some kind of scheme to to deal with the, the raid. Uh, he has kind of like three ways of of combating the raid. There's actually a fourth, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. The fourth is actually flak, but that tends to be kind of fairly static, and you only get to shoot when the the raid kind of blunders into it. Okay. So the the, the three the three main methods of fighting is there is um, uh, the system known as Himmelbett, uh, which was the code name that the Germans gave to their a chain of uh, ground control intercept uh, zones that stretch in a line all the way from Denmark down to France. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was kind of like a th you know thin thin blue line of of, of uh, Luftwaffe night fighters, and um, when the raid would penetrate these these boxes or Raum I think they they they're called in German, the uh, fighters would be guided from the ground to intercept the the bombers and 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 shoot them down. That's part the of the Cam Huber line, right? Uh, well, actually, no. The Cam Huber line gets confused with the Himmelbett line. The, the, the Cam Huber oh, line was okay. strictly speaking something slightly different. It was, it was the, it was actually the Himmelbett uh, boxes allied with um, the uh, a line of searchlights, and okay. the, search, the searchlights were actually what the British called the Cam Huber line because they could actually see the searchlights. But ah, what I happened see. was in uh, I think it was 1942. Was it early 43? Uh, the Gauleiters uh, protested about all the resources that were being given to um, uh, this, this line of defences, and instead wanted all the flak and the, the, the particularly the searchlights that were devoted to these to be brought back to the cities so that they could be used to defend the cities. So Hitler gave one of his little directives, and and the the, the, the line was stripped of the, the searchlights, and so. Strictly speaking, it kind of stopped being the Kamhuber line at that point, but uh, I think the, the, it's, the name has stuck ever since. Sorry, okay. historical no. diversion there. There you go. Um, All right, continue. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
So anyway, yes, you've got this thin thin line of uh, of defences, and uh, which the, the the raid can penetrate. And so one of the one of the choices the Germans got to make is identify the raid and try and put um, uh, you know populate the boxes in front of this uh, this raid. The two other techniques, though, uh, a little bit more famous, uh, are wild boars and tame boars. Mm -hmm. Wild boars were well, both of what they called free fighting techniques, and the idea was that the, the uh, up until the introduction of these these techniques, which was in mid mid nineteen forty three, the 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 Himmelbett uh, uh, boxes, this this line of defences, was pretty much the only night, way the night fighters fought. And it wasn't very efficient because the bomber streams would, would penetrate through the line on a very narrow uh, frontage and would overwhelm the defense there. And you'd get very, very few night fighter kills. And so they introduced this kind of techniques of free night fighting. And it came in two, two varieties. Wild boar was where they, they sent fighters over the cities that were being attacked. Because that was obviously where the bombers were being concentrated, all in, you know, in, in a narrow formation trying to bomb the city. And so that was a good place uh, for the, the fighters to, to find the bombers and attack them, often by the light of the searchlights and by the lights of the burning city and uh, flares that were being th thrown up by the flak and, and all sorts of other techniques. And the, the other technique was tambor, uh, a slightly different free fighting technique. But the idea here was uh, to take the, um, the twin engine fighters, twin, twin engine night fighters, and find a way to infiltrate these into the bomber stream. Uh, this required quite a lot of work. It required knowing where the bomber stream was and being able to give accurate directions to the fighters to be able to find the, the stream. But uh, as I said earlier, once they're within the stream, um, they can sort of swim uh, along with it and then just pick off bombers as as they saw fit. And uh, as the war went on, these became, well, certainly for sort of late 43, early 44, incredibly profitable tactics for um, the German night fighter force. So in the game, what the player does is, is try and you know, identify the, where the raid is coming and either, either move uh, wild boars to the cities to deal with the, the raids at the cities or try and, and infiltrate the, uh, uh, the night fighter grouping into the raid as it slides past. So that and seems once like it just starts shooting down bombers fit to bust. So that seems like it, <clears throat> there's a lot of decisions for the for the German player to make, and not a whole lot of decisions for the uh, for the uh, Allied, Allied player to player. make. That's right. Uh, but this is, I think, where the uh, in, rather like the other games, like uh, like Downtown and um, particularly the Burning Blue, the the, the British. Uh, player is on rails to a large extent but I think this is where the thing I was talking to you guys about earlier comes in with the card deck because I give the the British player a level of strategy to do with um, the cards and uh, you know how he can play those and that very much keeps the British player interacting in a way that maybe he w wasn't in the burning blue and so uh, oh, I don't seem to have had any complaints from the playtesters about this they, they seem to feel fairly uh, well engaged in, uh, in the play how does the card play work uh, in Bomber Command? I mean, you have what's okay. on the card. Basically, yeah, well, what's, well, well, on the what's, cards. On, what's on the cards? Where are they? What are they? How do they interact with uh, what the German player is doing? Well, the cards, uh, as I sort of mentioned earlier, the cards are kind of an excuse to fit in all of the the systems and the little bits of history and background that I couldn't otherwise bolt onto the armature of the game without it becoming right. very very unwieldy. So um, all these kind of strange systems with their odd code names, uh, you know, like Flensburg and Würzburg and, and Orgelpfeiffer and 
all these sorts of things get get incorporated into the game. And um, this is not really a, a card-driven game. It's not, you know, okay. in the sense of the traditional CDG. This is what I think is probably better described as a card-modified game. So what the cards do is allow you to modify various aspects of the game in some ways. I mean, for a lot of them, for example, are no more than dice modifiers to various things. Maybe they're a dice modifier to detection, being able to detect uh, raids. Maybe they're a dice modifier for infiltration or maybe just for combat. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's quite a lot of the cards actually just deal with modifying the basic elements of the game. And there are a few others that actually, you know, they have kind of strange and, and, and wacky powers and uh, they they do things that, uh, you know, maybe shift the game in a different direction, maybe introduce something new. Uh, like, for example, Fire Bash, which is in the late war scenario, um, allows you to do napalm attacks on, on airfields and essentially introduces an additional asset for the player to use. And, uh, you know, there, there, there are other examples of these as well. Uh, right. One of the, the other things the cards do, which is a very important function of the game, is that they, the appearance of the cards um, affects the rate at which the German air picture clarifies. And I kind of talked earlier about the idea of the German player has to uh, uh, figure out where the raid is coming from. They have to detect the raid, uh, figure out what the shape of the raid is, where it's going, and then deploy their forces accordingly. So detection is a very important part of the game. And so there's a, a, a thing in the game, a mechanic in the game, which I call the jamming track, which, as you probably gathered, kind of suggests it's, it's all about the jamming of radars and the jamming of communications and, and all these other things that, that, that made the, the, the German air defense system work. And um, the jamming level will slowly go down as um, the game progresses. And uh, the way I kind of moderate this is basically through the cards, through card play. Okay. So as, uh, as the jamming cards come out and then the German player plays these things, they, they slowly go down. And the British player has a couple of cards of his own to kind right. of push it back up again. So do you want to talk about the uncomfortable side of uh, the night raids? Uh, yes, we can talk about that. Um, <laughs> Basically, the other kind of strand of the game, because I, th I said uh, some time ago there were two strands, and the second strand really is the bombing. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about downtown, about how downtown shows this sort of uh, increase or this change, uh, uh, let's call it a technical revolution, um, that uh, helped the, the Americans uh, improve their ability to prosecute raids against North Vietnam. And they did it through a variety of techniques. You know, electronic warfare was one of the areas, and uh, uh, precision bombing was another area. And I think this is something that I wanted to depict in uh, Bomber Command. Everybody kind of knows a little bit of history about uh, about the Bomber Command War, and I think a lot for a lot of people, the history seems to begin and end with the Butch Report. And uh, the narrative, the story goes that uh, early in the war, the, the Bomber Command sent a lot of raids out at night. Uh, they, they tried daylight raiding, but basically got completely owned by the Luftwaffe, and so settled on, on night raiding instead as a means to get around this. And uh, the, the problem they had was just navigation. I mean, actually, you know, navigating an airplane at night is an incredibly hard thing. Uh, they, the way they got around it, essentially, was with, with radio navigation aids, but these were, were, were quite, quite uh, difficult to develop and took a long time to develop. What, they, uh, what Bomber Command found out uh, when they sort of did their, their early analysis of uh, their bombing results was that they, they just weren't even getting anywhere near, near the targets. They were having problems putting bombs on city-sized targets. 
and uh, in many cases were bombing, uh, doing an excellent job of bombing empty fields outside the cities. And so there was a, a report called the Butch Report that uh, was named after the civil servant who, who did the report. And uh, it, was a, it was quite a shocking thing. Uh, it, it spurred a lot of effort to try and improve aircraft navigation at night, try and Im- improve accuracy. And so I, I think a lot, of, a lot of people, the history of Bomber Command sort of begins and ends with that. Uh, Bomber Command is not very accurate. Bomber Command's response to not being very accurate is to essentially carpet bomb cities in a very indiscriminate fashion, uh, scattering bombs around and, uh, uh, and so on. Although when I was growing up as a uh, as a young English lad at high school, we used to laugh at Americans for coming up with these sort of neologisms like uh, collateral damage. Uh, mm-hmm. there, unfortunately, the, the the British had uh, their own weasel-worded uh, term for this back in the 1940s, which was dehousing, which sounds <laughs> almost friendly, doesn't it? You know, we're, we're not attacking civilians. We're we're not we're not 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 killing workers or their families. We're dehousing them. And so uh, the you know, like I said, for a lot of people, the history kind of ends there. What people don't realise was actually in the last year of the war, uh, the, the Royal Air Force went through uh, its own uh, technological revolution and tactical revolution, doctrinal revolution. And the last year of the war, they were actually very, very accurate. In fact, they were more accurate bombing at night than uh, the Americans were in bad weather by day, which is a very, very interesting um, uh, feat. Well, I mean, I think the I think the bigger issue. So, I mean, with, I think with war games, one of the things that um, that sort of has been always been taboo, or at least they try to hide it as well as possible, is that uh, you know you don't have war games which have you know exclusively civilian targets as their objective, right? Um, yeah, you, that's that's kind of that's kind that's kind of not allowed. Although I mean, it, it, it that taboo is violated. I, mean, I don't know, I don't know, Lee, if you've played uh, the HPS game Defending the Reich. Has it you know an awful? Uh, I, I know of it. I haven't yeah. played it. Yeah, it's a very unfortunate title, but uh, um, I, I and, and that has a whole bunch of parallels as I want to talk about too. And it, um, but I mean the 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 idea that you have games which which basically just have killing civilians as their as their goal have always been sort of war games always try to stay away from that because it, it sort of feeds into the stereotype of, of war gamers and uh, uh, as, as sort of like uh, you know morally ab- aberrant aberrant uh, you know cretins who uh, just like pushing things around that uh, you know uh, abstract uh, mass uh, mass destruction and uh, and killing but um, I mean I think the 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 big argument has always been, I know that uh, whatever, um, uh, the recent book, was it uh, Grayling's book about uh, uh, the destruction of the cities and um, how there's there's sort of a revisionist, um, a revisionist historical uh, viewpoint which sort of tries to equate the uh, the bomber, the, the, the uh, uh, British uh, night offensive and the, actually the American uh, bombing offensive with, uh, with the German... Um, Sort of make it make a war crime out of it. Uh, also, the American uh, American strategic campaign against uh, against Japan, which actually is, is not as 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 often modeled uh, in war games. But um, so I guess I mean that's the whole that's the whole question, right? That comes up when you start when you, when you uh, I know that I was reading a, a book about as a matter of fact about uh, Battle of Britain, which uh, talked about how uh, Hugh Dowding's uh, 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 statue has 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 stood in front of I don't I guess it's in front of RAF headquarters for so many years, but uh, shortly after Bomber Harris had a statue made uh, in his honor, it was defaced. 
Uh, oh, yes. Harris is a, is a divisive figure, no doubt. Right. I mean, particularly in, in, in Britain, in my country. It's a very difficult area. I mean, we, we're covering a big, large number of subjects here. So right, let's, let's try right. and tackle these things in, in, a different, in a number of different ways. I think one is to look at um, you know, people's responses to this. I think, yes, some people are nervous about the, uh, you know, what will, what will you know, ordinary civilians think of us and our, our warlike hobby. Uh, actually, I suspect that's probably a lot le- that, that's less of a problem for an awful lot of, a lot of us wargamers. Uh, I think there is genuine unease about um, seeing direct portrayal of uh, civilian killing in games. And one can entirely understand it. I mean, there, you know, there's been a few people who said, I don't want to buy your game. Some of them German, some of them not. Uh, and I think that's fair enough. I can entirely understand the reasons for that. And I did think for a long time about how I was going to tackle uh, portraying uh, this subject in the game. And I thought I'd, I'd just kind of deal with it head on. And I actually say, you know, this is... This is, at least in, in the initial scenario, a game um, that is, uh, you know, to a certain extent, about killing civilians. Let's, let's make no bones about it. And the trouble is, this is a very complex thing, because it's not just about killing civilians. Nobody, um, you know, although the, the policy of area bombing was adopted, and you know, certainly Harris seemed to believe quite fervently in it, and a number of other people did as well, it was never just purely about um, uh, you know trying to kill civilians or trying to dehouse them or whatever weasel word you want to use. Mm-hmm. It was about uh, you know trying to strike at industry, right. and uh, you know the the rationale, rightly or wrongly, g- that was given was that if if that just happens to involve you know bombing a load of, of industrial workers out of their homes and displacing them, then you know we're we're quite happy with that. Thank you very much indeed. Right. Right. It's also um, Interesting in that, uh, you know, it's not just simply a case of, you know, you bomb factories because though certainly there were large industrial complexes uh, uh, that were targets in and of their own, a lot of cities um, had uh, light light engineering concerns scattered Mm -hmm. around through, you know, neighbourhoods that might otherwise be residential. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the Tokyo firebombings earlier. I think this is another example, uh, another good example of this. An awful lot of Japanese industry, for, for good or for ill, was in fact still is today to a certain extent um, run like a cottage industry, mm-hmm. and there were there was an awful lot of kind of you know small workshops and uh, you know small engineering companies and little mum and pup firms turning out little co- components uh, scattered all over the city. So in some ways you know the the, the city um, the, the, you know the wider city uh, can be quite legitimately described as a target. Uh, uh, Frederick Taylor's book on Dresden does a very interesting job of of enumerating all the various uh, defence-related concerns that were around the city. And, and you know, even the centre of the city, there were a lot of small firms doing war work, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in optics or, or, or whatever. In, in, um, so, I mean, it, it's not as simple, it's, it's not as, as simple as we are going for civilians and, avoid, and avoiding industry or, uh, or we're going for industry and we, you know, we're hitting civilians. It's, it's a very complex matter. But yep. you know, nevertheless, you know, we have to accept that um, you know, for a long time, area bombing was policy. Area bombing was was a was policy of bomber command because of the difficulties it had in trying to achieve precision against targets. I think the one thing though I wanted to talk about in the game, and you know, we can talk about this here, is actually the degree to which the RF eventually achieved precision, which they did in that last year of the war, mm-hmm. uh, just in the run up to Overlord. There's an interesting kind of story here, and run up to to Operation Overlord. 
they uh, the bomber command was given the job of bombing um, the French railway system. Uh, problem with the, bombing the French railway system with bomber command uh, was, of course, that of bombing an awful lot of Frenchmen, which, uh, as you can understand, the Allies were very, very unhappy about. Um, right. You know, it's one thing one thing to dehouse uh, German workers; it's another thing to to kill your own allies. So, mm-hmm. they were looking for ways to minimise the damage, and so. Out of this requirement, um, essentially a lot of new techniques and tactics appeared, um, particularly low-level marking, uh, which was pioneered by Leonard Cheshire of uh, Five Group. And from this, a series of techniques meant that precision bombing was actually attainable, and and the the bomber command did some astonishing work in, in France. And all of a sudden, things that were previously very hard to hit became possible to hit. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, you know, transportation targets, uh, uh, oil targets, uh, all became became possible to hit, uh, and and uh, a lot more efforts began to be devoted to these sorts of targets in that last year of the war. And so there was this, as I say, it's kind of like res- rev- revolution in precision. Now you know, not quite the the level of resolution we saw in Vietnam, where you go from kind of the dumb bombing era into the the precision guided munition era, but in terms of the the, the effectiveness of the bombing, um, there are you know a lot of parallels and equivalences, uh, and so I kind of represent this very much in the game by showing how you know the, the in the uh, sort of mid period of the war, which is the first scenario in the game, your your requirements are uh, for precision are quite loose, but in the in the second scenario, you're very much required to achieve precision, and you're given some tools in order to do this as well. And I actually have done, managed to talk about this now without actually talking about how this works in the game, but we can get onto that, that subject in a short while. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we get onto that uh, as soon as we can, because I don't want to keep you here all night. Oh, sorry, I'm having good fun. Hope you don't mind <laughs> me just rabbiting on like this. I can do this all night. So, yes, the the bombing system. Um, a lot of air games, and I've done this in my previous air games myself, tend to treat bombing as almost an afterthought. And uh, it's like, you know, the, the bombers fly over the target, you get some victory points for bombing, and they fly off home. And it's, it's a legitimate way of, 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 of doing things to a certain extent. But I felt with, the, uh, with Bomber Command that so many things impacted um, how bombing worked. It was such a complex and intricate uh, enterprise that I had to find a way of portraying it in more detail, in a much more granular fashion than you find it in, in other games. And so essentially what I did is I created a sub-game. Um, and in the sub-game, you have a, a map of a city. In fact, we have four maps. They represent different sizes of cities. And, uh, but you know, each city has its, has its own map. And you essentially you have to just like drop bomb counters onto the map. You go through a kind of a process of uh, uh, setting out where the aim point on the target is, then determining how accurately you mark that aim point with with flares, and uh, that itself depends on the kind of uh, target indicating um, target marking technique that you're using. There are kind of three main techniques they used during the war, which was uh, New Haven, uh, Parramatta, and Wanganui. Uh, the latter two names are borrowed from uh, a New Zealand and an Australian town. If you want, we're going to, to know. put that. We're going to put uh, uh, like uh, links to that in the bottom of the podcast because nobody's going to understand what that is. Yeah. <laughs> Continue. And so, uh, yeah, the 
you have to mark the target and then you have to try and achieve a concentration on the marked area and that concentration might well creep back from the target so that the the, the bombs might actually move away from where the where you're aiming them at and uh, and scatter across a bit different part of the city and there's a kind of a whole bunch of of different things and again, again the card card deck has a something to play here the card deck brings in some of those bits of tactical detail things like sector bombing offset bombing the master bomber system, uh, uh, decoys, smoke pots, uh, civil defence uh, systems, all these things affecting um, the ability to bomb in some way. And if, if you achieve a concentration of bombs, then you start fires. And if you start, uh, and fires are where the real damage uh, was achieved. And so, uh, starting fires depends on a number of things, not least of which you know the the, the proportion of HE and incendiaries that you drop on a particular area of the city. And if you start enough fires and in enough important places, then you know you get a lot of you get a big score for it. Right. And uh, in certain conditions, um, uncommon conditions, you can potentially start a firestorm. And that's the. Do you get a lot of victory points for starting a firestorm? Well, yes. Okay, excellent. <laughs> There's no other way around it. Um, I'm afraid so. Yes, the history of firestorms is uh, is is a uh, uh, you know rather ignoble one but mm -hmm. uh, the fact is that they where where they occurred and they were very difficult to create though mm -hmm. you couldn't really create them deliberately well you in, could in the sense of you could create them by just simply dropping loads of incendiaries and bombs but what right. i mean is that there wasn't actually a, a science to creating them um although the, there was a lot of effort into trying to 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 make fires as devastating as possible but I mean, where where genuine firestorms occurred uh they were generally regarded as quite a good thing i mean the the the, the bombing of dresden was regarded by the pilots at the time as as being a particularly good show a good night so although um Although yeah. there were there was also resistance by the I had just read uh, Masters of the Air, uh, the history of the Eighth Air Force uh, that came out a few years ago, saying that the uh, pilots, uh, Eighth Air Force pilots, were also uh, somewhat um, reluctant to bomb Berlin because they a it was very uh, high uh, they had a high uh, fatality rate and b they felt it was just a purely civilian target uh, that was basically for show and wasn't didn't was having having a military effect. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I can imagine the rank and file may well have felt like that. Um, the problem with the, with the American bombing, the dirty little secret of American bombing, is, is that an awful lot of American bombing was area bombing. Right. In fact, pretty much almost exactly half, uh, going by the by the numbers given in the US United, United States Strategic Bombing Survey, were, were actually area bombing. Right. Um, and you know, therefore, as, as inaccurate as uh, as the the British were in the middle middle phase of the war, uh, and this was this was one of the thing, one of the things that was very much known to the the, the generals certainly, that uh, you know, daylight effort in cloud bombing through cloud was um, indistinguishable from area bombing. Right. Well, the, uh, here's the question I have for you: from a, for, to take this back to computer games, sort of, and right. uh, and uh, and really ask the question of why. I mean, you keep every time we talk about a game like this, you you're you're, you're you you keep uh, mentioning various details, and uh, it seems to me that those details are essential to the game. And every time I play one of these large raid scale games, I mean, and, and there aren't that many, but it seems like there's so much that's sort of uh, being managed by the game that the game feels very sterile. And I'm not sure how, and maybe as a as a as a you know as a computer game developer, you could speak to how, what you would have to do to make a, a raid scale game interesting 
from the you know from the player standpoint rather than than just you know telling the bombers to go here and then clicking on as as the defending player clicking on the bomber stream and telling your your fighters to intercept and then just seeing what happens. But I think this kind of takes us back to the kind of origin of of air war games. Um uh, and possibly a failing of a lot of the earlier air war games. Um I think Let's take, let's take move the conversation to a slightly different place for a moment, and then we'll tack back to this subject. Um, there is uh, a problem with, I think, all war games, in that uh, they the player tends to wear a lot of different hats in their role as the player. If you take, for example, a Napoleonic battle, most of what Napoleon was about was probably uh, deploying his troops in uh, at the big start of the battle and then uh, maybe making one or two decisions or maybe two or three decisions during the course of the battle, probably all of which had to do with release of reserves. You try and convert that into a game, then you know you don't really have a lot of decision-making for a player. I mean, you become, right. as you say, kind of sterile. So what a lot of games do is they end up... You, you can be um, Napoleon, you can be the Napster himself, but you're also his core commanders, so you're wearing two hats. And in fact, some games, they kind of bury down echelon by echelon so that you, you wear even more hats. Mm-hmm. And so you, uh, you end up with this, uh, you know, quite an incredible array of, of hats and a big wobbly pile on top of your head. And of course, the problem is that it gets wobblier and wobblier as uh, the more hats you wear. Right. Uh, or more specifically, the, the game becomes more and more distorted. Mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden, all of these echelons are under perfect control of a, of a single commander. Right. And uh, who might have, you know, perfect intelligence and be able to, uh, to, to somehow control all his lower echelons in, a, in an absolutely optimal fashion. So how do you solve uh, that problem as a computer game designer, then? Um, it's solving that game as a computer game designer, I'm not sure you necessarily uh, can. Because the, I, I think a lot depends on what the, you want the user, user experience. The reason we have wear all these hats in war, ga- in war games is simply because that's the thing that gives the player pleasure. It gives him a lot of decision points in the game, a lot of moments to actually be able to, to be an actor um, in the game. And I think what you find with a kind of strategy game style approach is you end up doing the same kind of thing. Uh, if you just kept it to one echelon, then actually the number of decisions you make probably becomes uh, maybe a little bit too few, it's a little bit, uh, a little bit too small to be comfortable. So you end right. up expanding the role of the player, so that uh, you know you don't just manage your echelon, but you kind of manage the one below that, possibly even the one below that. And some of the strategy mm-hmm. games, as you guys know, kind of dig down quite deep into the details sometimes. So uh, right. I think the same same problem applies, and it, it's particularly a problem I think in air games, and I think particularly in air games maybe because of the romance of the subject. I mean everybody likes the idea of you know being a knight of the air and actually flying flying uh, the aircraft. So you end up with games that uh, and I think you know games like Bomber and Luftwaffe were touching on this, where you're almost like the pilot in the cockpit and the bombardier in the lead uh, B-17, while at the same time you're mm-hmm. the you know the, you're the general back in England who's uh, picking out targets from the target list. And right. so you end up with a kind of very very unwieldy st- uh, structure. I think that's the direction you go in if you're going to create um, a, a user experience that's going to be full and rich and enjoyable. I think it's uh, the problem is is that you start distorting the model, and I think you start getting away from history. When so you, the model. You do that. 
it seems like the model and in and in, in, in distorting the history seems to be something that you're you're very concerned with in your games because I, I've I've been reading and, and writing a lot about the uh, Battle of Britain uh, in the last few months and um, one of the things that I and and I'll I'll uh, I'll be writing about this very shortly but the burning blue one of the things that the, that game specifically does not do is it does not let the Germans plot their own raids. They're sort of they're sort of stuck to a historical raid mix. So it's you can't basically you're not you're not uh, Kessel Ring or uh, you're not you know you're not Hermann Göring. You're not uh, you're not any of the you're basically just the the guy that's uh, well I guess I guess you might be um, you're not choosing the targets is the point and so you're sort yeah. of you're you're left with there's there's not really a question of whether the 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 bombing raids as chosen could have won the battle you just have to do the best you can with those raids and that's right that's right, right. Let, let's let's talk about this for a moment because i think this is this is a really interesting thing I mean, let, you talk, let's talk about the battle of britain for a second but also let's right. talk about scales i mean I, I began by talking about scales earlier and i talked talk about the division between the kind of the the the, the, the tactical um uh, dogfight scale and the the raid scale but i think there's also a division between the raid scale and what i call the operational scale and uh, I think these two things are an example of where you may have this kind of like wearing too many hats starts mm -hmm. distorting the model. Um, uh, because the oper when you actually get to operational level, I think the important areas of focus for um, a player should be uh, things like um, basing, sortie generation, intelligence, targeting. Um, you're not about flying the raids anymore. What you're about is assigning resources to particular missions. You're saying, right, you know, we, we have a particular target here. These are the, the sorties that we're going to generate and assign to this, uh, you know, based on this intelligence and, and so on. You're not actually about f uh, f uh, necessarily flying the raids. What a lot of Battle of Britain games are done, in fact, pretty much all of them, um, uh, with the exception of, m of my game, is they end up with this kind of mishmash of scales. They're trying to be the big operational scale game, choosing targets and, uh, and allocating effort to them. And they're also trying to resolve the raids in, in you know, a more or less detailed fashion. And I'm not entirely sure it works. It's made for some very, very un unwieldy games. Mm. Um, one of the guys I admire enormously, who's, who's actually produced not one but four games in the Battle of Britain now, is a guy called John Butterfield. Yeah, so, he's produced a lot of games about a lot of other things too. He has. He's an incredible designer. I mean, I, I wish I had a fraction of his talent. He's a he's an astonishing designer, and a very very nice guy as well. I've had. Uh, you want to go through some of his titles? So play. Um, D-Day at Omaha Beach is one of his most recent ones. But uh, of his his Battle of Britain games, he made uh, Battle Over Britain, REF. Uh, there's actually another game called REF, which is actually the 2.0 version, and and very much changed. Version he's made a one recently called uh, the Hardest Days as well, so he's he's okay. he's you know been all over the Battle of Britain and he knows his onions. Uh, he he's been tackling the problem. He's I think come close to closest to cracking it, but even then I think he you end up with this kind of odd mixture of uh, of, of trying to do the tactical detail and, and and operational stuff. And in some ways he's actually come unstuck on on this uh, on this very problem of target and and sortie generation. Um, one of the reasons I had the kind of fixed schedule, the historical schedule of uh, bombing raids, was I couldn't come up with a, a generic system to, uh, to generate targets and raids. Um, and partly because some of the, the, the uh, German decision making on target selection was, how can I say this politely, 
um, completely irrational. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not in, not entirely true, but there were there are there are elements of of irrationality to it, and and th- it was um, less of a science and more of making it up as we go along. Right. Uh, I think there's a story about Kesselring basically uh, striking tar- targets off of his off of his map each time they were hit, which of course is erroneous because he uh, in many cases failed to restrike some of those targets and right. uh, and didn't do enough damage on the first time around. So. Um, uh, and, and, and even John has found run into this this, this problem. In our, the second edition RAF, which is a marvellous game, I highly recommend it. We actually come to use the, uh, the, the the elements of the game from the German perspective. You get to play the German. Right. Uh, probably generate far too many sorties and far too many rates. And, uh, right. and actually, I uh, John has actually issued some rules now to try and throttle that back. But you know, it's interesting that he he ran into a very similar problem there. It it, it is quite difficult to. Um, uh, it's sometimes quite difficult to model an irrational actor and then put that in the hands of a rational player and have yeah. them produce something historical. Wow, this has been. Uh, I could I could probably go on with this for like another. Uh, Easy, you could easily go for another I, hour. I, I, I could go are, easily I'm go sure you have hour. a lot of notes and questions you didn't even get yeah. to, didn't you? Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't get to them. But uh, in the we have a we have a. Um, Sort of goal of trying to to keep these in listenable listenable uh, lengths. Otherwise, uh, our listeners complain and say, uh, you know, you're just you you've got too much for us. And so, why uh, have you got some fat Englishman there blathering on about airplanes? Make him go away. Make him stop. No, it's, well, it's we fascinating. Are looking, it is. I mean, the, I like to talk about the whole concept of air power, and there's just yeah. so much, so many directions. This conversation could go yeah. over the next yeah. three hours. Yeah, uh, exactly. Easily. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll have uh, to do. We'll have to do. A, what, you know what we can do is we can do. When Bomber a, Command uh, comes out, we yeah. When Bomber Command comes out, we'll, we'll do. A, we'll do another show, and we'll uh, we'll get you to to publicize Bomber Command, and uh, you know, by that time, I'll uh, I'll have it, and uh, maybe Troy will have it, and we can um, ask you a whole bunch of questions about the actual game. Uh, as it plays itself. But, well, uh, I've had enormous fun here. It's been a yeah. blast. Well, yeah. if you excuse the, uh, the bad <laughs> yeah. There you go. It's been a firestorm. Yeah. Oh, God. No, okay. We're not going to... That, that'll be edited out by our sound editor. So, uh, <laughs> no, it won't. He's now going to yeah. keep that in. You know. No, probably yeah. not. Not in all nice. likelihood. Uh, well, Lee, very thank you. Thanks a lot for joining us here. That was... It was great. Thank you so much. Appreciate oh, it's been your, a pleasure. Uh, appreciate, appreciate your time. All right. It will... Uh, uh, Reminder to our listeners, uh, if you listen to the podcast and you like the podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes. Uh, I've gotten some questions as to why we're not on Zoom. I have no idea why we're not on Zoom. I keep trying and applying. Hopefully it worked this time. So uh, fingers crossed. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Bruce. And everyone have a nice week. Good night.